Today is the second Sunday of Eastertide, a season of 50 days after Easter where we remember the ways in which Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. Last week we explored the story of Jesus meeting Thomas in the midst of all his grief and pain and doubt and gave him exactly what he needed to trust in the good news of the resurrection. And today in the Gospel of Luke we are exploring the story of how the risen Jesus came alongside two grieving disciples as they walked a long way and revealed his identity to them during a meal. Listen now for God's word to us. It's from the Gospel of Luke, verses, uh, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other as you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he would have been the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place, Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. As they came near the village to where they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us along the road while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Risen Lord, meet us here in the midst of all the things our hearts are carrying. All the hopes, the sorrows, the joys, the fears. Speak to us what we need to know. 
quiet the distractions within and without. In and through this, your holy word, shape us into the people you dreamt of at creation. Amen. Sometimes with this story in particular, I think it's easy for us to become a little distanced and desensitized to the timeline of Easter and how rapidly things were happening. And so I want to take a, just a moment to get oriented inside the story really well. This story takes place on Easter evening. Friday, Jesus was crucified. Saturday, the disciples observed the Sabbath. Sunday morning came all, over, all the reports of the empty tomb, but most dismissed it as nonsense. For some, Easter morning was a time of a joyous revelation. But for most of Jesus' disciples, the first Easter began with fear and confusion and sorrow. Two days prior, just two days, they had witnessed their beloved teacher tortured, humiliated, and executed. The violence, the shock, the bewildering grief was so fresh. It was all-consuming. It's not something that could have been soothed with, well, at least he's not in pain now, or heaven needed another angel. In the most basic sense of the word, they had both witnessed trauma and experienced psychological trauma themselves. And so two disciples decided to leave Jerusalem and head to a small town called Emmaus. Perhaps they were afraid of being arrested and crucified as well. As Jason noted last week, that's very common. Perhaps they needed to put some literal distance between themselves and all the pain they had just witnessed and experienced. And in the midst of their grief and confusion, they kept discussing all that had happened. And when we experience great loss or trauma, we tend to pursue one of two inclinations. We tend to want to process it and talk about it a lot, try and make meaning about it, or we we stuff it down and distract ourselves with other things. And it seems that these two disciples were processing what had happened, trying to make sense of all the horror they had seen and all the fear they felt now about an empty tomb, Jesus' body apparently stolen, perhaps to be further humiliated. There's a couple of phrases in this text I want to call our attention to as we begin to explore what this might have to say to us today. The first is about halfway through the story, where Jesus comes up and he's walking alongside uh, Cleopas, and and many presume his wife was the other disciple. And it says in the text that their eyes were kept from recognizing him, which is like an interesting turn of phrase. It didn't say they didn't recognize him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And they called Jesus a stranger. Other translations for that word here are foreigner, visitor, sojourner, Something about Jesus' voice and appearance was no longer familiar. Like Mary outside the tomb, they did not recognize his voice or his face. What's interesting about this phrase, their eyes were kept from recognizing him, is that there's no explanation for why. Were their eyes filled with tears, like Mary's were? Was Jesus himself responsible for somehow obscuring his identity while they walked and talked? We don't know the circumstance, whether it was from their grief or from an intentional action of God, but it sets up a really important contrast for us later in the story when they did finally recognize Jesus. Let's hold on to that for a minute. 
The second phrase that I find particularly interesting here is when Jesus called the two disciples fools. Now, I confess to you, I really wish Jesus had used a different word. (laughs) At first glance, it's just so judgy and condescending. Like, why would Jesus say that? They're grieving, they're weeping, it's been awful. Sometimes in other stories, he would refer to his listeners as little children. And it still had that connotation of not knowing or not understanding, but also had more kindness and gentleness wrapped in. And scholars make a distinction here about how elsewhere in scriptures, fools is usually synonymous with wicked or sinful, but here it is just plain they just don't understand. In other words, Jesus said, you're, just, you're not getting it. And while we know Jesus often challenged his listeners, he also only challenged them from a place of love. Now, a way of thinking about this that started to make sense to me this week is if you've ever spent any time around a toddler, uh, you've already experienced this dynamic at work, whether it's a a relative or your own child or caregiving in any way. Several years ago, um, submissions from parents far and wide were collected and published in a book called Reasons My Kid Is Crying. Examples include, I gave her the green cup instead of the blue cup. I wouldn't let him lick the garbage can. I couldn't make it stop raining. It was a Tuesday and they wanted it to be Wednesday. On and on and on. These are hilarious and those of us who are caregivers of young ones uh, share these as a way to laugh together instead of crying together. And as adults, it can be astounding, the things that can cause so much distress in little ones. Even if these examples might be funny to us in the moment for that child, their frustration, their disappointment, their sadness, their anger are very real. And it can be hard sometimes for us to be patient and give the child that space to express their emotions because we want to assure them that it's actually okay, that the green cup just as functional as a blue cup. It will eventually stop raining. Tuesdays are just as good as Wednesdays. We know that truth, that reality, but the reality they're experiencing emotionally is very different. And we want to alleviate that distress by telling them the truth that on a macro level, these things are not a big deal. It's okay. Now, of course, there's a way to do both, and most caregivers I know try to hold that tension of encouraging expression while at the same time staying calm and reassuring the child of reality once the child is calm. But I wonder if that's a bit of what Jesus did here in this interaction. He listened to all these things that had happened, and he heard them when they said we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. He listened, likely with care and intention, And then he walked them through the truth. Yes, their grief was real. But so was the fact that there was a plan that God would not let death and evil have the last word. So those two phrases kind of set up the rest of the story for us. And I want to think more through how we might identify with what the disciples were feeling. When we're facing a significant loss um, or trauma or grief, we want to not feel alone. We want to feel like God is with us, even in our grief and in our terror. The disciples were confused. They were lonely. Their teacher was gone. 
And our tradition tells us that God is with us in all of those things. But so often our grief and our pain and our trauma are all-consuming. And there's actually biological pieces to that, where if you're experiencing a traumatic event, your brain automatically shuts down parts of your memory to protect yourself so you can function and move forward. But on a lesser scale, even when we're talking about perhaps smaller disappointments or, or frustrations, it can be difficult to remember what we know to be true, that God is with us and God loves us, that we're not alone, that we have a family of faith, that we have friends and people in our lives who care about us. It is hard to recognize God's presence in our lives when our minds and our hearts are consumed with grief and pain. But in this story, Jesus met them in their grief, walked with them through that, and pointed them to the word, walked that thread through the scripture. But that phrase, when we talked about a couple minutes ago, about their eyes were kept from recognizing him. When Jesus had a meal with them and broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to him. Those words, if you've ever been here for communion, are very familiar. It was one of the last things he did before the crucifixion. Jesus taught on the whole way to Emmaus, walking through things that they already heard him say, but somehow even his teaching didn't unlock their recognition of him but the blessing and the breaking and the giving of the bread, that revealed his identity. That's when they recognized him. And that points to me a very intentional choice on the part of Jesus. We don't have record of him saying, hey, it's me, I'm alive. Here's all the reasons why this happened. Let me prove to you how this was a fulfillment of the scripture. Jesus chooses to reveal himself in the breaking and the blessing and the giving of the bread in this embodied, physical way. It touches on all of the senses. Even post-resurrection, Jesus reveals himself through his body, his movements, his presence, and not just his words. And I think that's just so powerful and a different It points all the way back to the incarnation, that God chose to become human so that we could more fully connect and relate to God in that way. Now, in in years past, when I preach on this text, I've understood the, or I've, I've sensed that the call or the challenge is to try our very hardest to remember that God is with us and God loves us. And we've, we've talked through different uh, methods of doing that, you know, like putting the sticky note on your bathroom mirror that says God loves you, or memorizing a scripture, or listening to certain music, or, or prioritizing um, coming to church. All of those things are worth doing. But this year, as I was thinking about this text, and um, in this season of life, and this season of life at Old Pine, that's pretty hectic. Um, it started to feel like good news that it's not up to us to remember. But in the story, the disciples are not working hard to remember. They are just grieving. They're just being present to that pain. 
And Jesus meets them there and gives them memory. It's a blessing that he gives them. It's a gift that he gives them. It's not something that we need to accomplish and strive for and become good at. It's a gift that Jesus gives to us. And so I wonder if the challenge, at least this year, from this text, is to stay soft, to stay open in our grief. So often we just want to clam it all up and run away. We certainly don't want to cry in front of anyone else or, or share that with anyone else. But perhaps the call is to stay soft, to stay open, to let other people in to let them love us. Because we can trust that no matter how many times we forget that God is faithful, that God loves us, that we're not alone, God keeps showing up and giving us the blessing of memory, bringing us back to what we already know. This is uh, really demonstrated well in the story that... um, was on the news about almost 10 years ago. And it was a story about um, a Jewish therapist who worked with um, patients who had dementia or Alzheimer's. And the therapist's name was Naomi Fail, and the, the patient was Gladys Wilson. And there's this remarkable um, video where Naomi kind of describes her process and how she mirrors um, Gladys's movements to kind of connect with her. Gladys uh, was older, had severe Alzheimer's, was completely nonverbal most of the time. And um, Naomi would connect with her by singing her songs of her youth and her faith. So Jesus loves me, this I know. Um, and that in itself is a beautiful testament to loving other people. But she started to sing, um, he's got the whole world in his hands, Um, And as she started to sing that, Gladys started to tap her on the arm, and she matched that rhythm with the singing. And then as the song continued, Gladys kind of grabbed her her sweater and, like, pulled her in, like, head to head, like, forehead to forehead, like this close. And then would kind of keep tapping. Naomi was still singing. Then she says... um, He's got the mothers and the fathers in his hands. And Gladys started singing in his hands. He's got the brothers and the sisters in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And for this five-second span of time, Gladys was safe. She was present. Naomi was present in that moment there was a memory there that was unlocked by this embodied movement, this connection with her. It's not the same as breaking the bread, but it's that music, it's the singing, it's the touching together. Like Jesus offered his wounds to Thomas. This is the the Christ that we worship. This is the Christ who conquered the grave. He comes to you and he brings us memory in his body, in these things that connect to our bodies that go beyond our words or our comprehension. 
no matter how often we forget. God is faithful to show up and give us the memory that we need. What a gift. Amen.